Well, let's look at, uh, we'll start in Genesis 1 this morning. Be looking specifically at the topic of baptism um, together this morning. And let's just ask the Lord uh, to help us uh, as we look into his word. Okay. Lord God, you are the one who has created this world. You are the one who breathed life at the beginning into this world. And we have sinned. We have died. But Christ has lived. And I pray that you would help us to rejoice that we are a part of the new world that he has begun, the world where the spirit of life reigns. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant us understanding of a topic that has been misunderstood by so many in this world. I pray that you would grant us confidence uh, in understanding the scriptures. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. In his name, amen. We will look at four different things in regard to baptism this morning. Uh, we'll look at the story of baptism. Uh, what is baptism within the story of the Word of God? And then my intention uh, in going through the story of baptism is probably a lot that you could write down. But if you look at the second point, the significance of baptism... We're going to go back through, we're going to, I'm going to tell the story of baptism through the scripture and then come back and look at the four things that we can gather out of that story as to what makes baptism significant. And then we will just look at some questions and answers on baptism as a result of what we see about its significance. And then I think you have seven implications of baptism on your sheet and I'm actually going to add one more to make eight, okay? So it's not don't feel a great burden to take a lot of notes under the story of baptism. We'll come back and summarize all that in the second part of it. Okay. Genesis 1 gives us the story of the creation of the world. And when God created the world, verse 31 tells us that when he got done, it was all very good. And this good world was simply an extension of God and his own goodness. God had created the world and it reflected him. It reflected his own goodness. But notice a couple of things here in Genesis 1 that the scripture tells us about how God created this world. Look at verse 2, Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then, verse 3, God speaks, let there be light, and there was light. Spirit of God, God speaks, it happens, exactly as God said. How did the world come to be? The answer is that the Spirit of God was superintending and shaping the creation of this world. God spoke His words, 
and the Spirit of God is brooding over the creation of the world as a mother hen is gathering together her chicks and shaping her nest for them. And the result is that life springs up where before nothing had existed. The earth is formless and void. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. God speaks and suddenly the world bursts into life with order and form. And then God creates on the sixth day the man. Flip over to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. Man springs to life in this verse. And how did it happen? From the dust, God fashions a lifeless mass of clay. And then the scripture tells us he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And the clay suddenly stands erect and begins to walk about. This is the creation of man created to rule the world. And he's animated. He comes to life and lives by the breath of God. Now, that word breath is a very special word because it's actually exactly the same word as Spirit of God back in chapter 1, verse 2. Here we have the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. God speaks and the Spirit brings it to life with order. And then God creates the man and he breathes his breath, his spirit into him. And man stands up and lives in this world. The universe is nurtured into life and order by the Spirit of God. He is the life-giving Spirit. And in this world, life reigns. There's no tombs. There's no death. It is a world of life. It is the world created by the life-giving Spirit. And then man sins. And death strides boldly into this world. No longer is life the reigning Lord of man. Now man, who has been created to rule this world, becomes a slave of death. The universe, the spirit nurtured into life and order, begins now to fall apart. It begins to descend into chaos. The flame of God's own life that once pulsated through this world and animated the man, that flame now is quenched. The spirit of life has withdrawn. This was the condition in which the world existed for several thousand years. At times throughout the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would re-enter this world. He would empower a man to perform some great act of service for God, such as when Samson, by the Spirit of God, tore the gates of the city from their very foundation and carried them miles away. This was the power of God's Spirit in that man. And yet did Samson carry the Spirit of God with him throughout the rest of his life? Or such as when David... Empowered by the Spirit of God to reign as king over Israel for 40 years in a, in a nearly undefeatable military championship. Nobody could conquer David. Why? Because the Spirit of God is empowering him. But even though the Spirit of God enters this world to empower individuals for service, he's largely absent from the Old Testament. And all during that time, man is dying. Mankind is poor. We are without good news. We are broken-hearted, captives, enslaved under death's reign. This is not the time of God's favor. The spirit of life 
had withdrawn. But toward the end of Israel's existence as a nation, just as she was being torn apart and dismantled by the Babylonians, Israel's prophets foretold of a coming period of time when Messiah would come. He would have the Spirit of God upon him. He would bring, Isaiah 61, good news to the poor. He would bind up the brokenhearted. He would proclaim liberty to the captives. He would open the prison to those who were bound. And he would announce the time when God would once again show favor. How would Messiah bring these benefits to mankind? By what means would he reverse the effects of sin? How would he reanimate this dead world? What breath would he breathe into this world to bring life once again? And the answer to all of those questions is, he would bring the Spirit. Once again, God would breathe into the world the breath of life and man would live again. Time and time again, the prophets foretold that this coming period, this golden age of the Messiah, when Israel would live again, would be the age of the Spirit. And thus, it's no surprise that when we open the first pages of our New Testament to Luke's Gospel, Luke 1 and 2, we find the Spirit at nearly every turn in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. You can't read through those first two chapters of Luke and not see the Spirit of God nearly in every single person's life. Why is the Spirit of God so prominent in Luke 1 and 2, the birth of Jesus of Nazareth? The answer is that the Spirit of life is once again brooding over this world. He's brooding over a new creation. He's nurturing into existence the body of Jesus of Nazareth, creating life in the womb of Mary where no life had existed previously. God had promised that Messiah would be born of a virgin to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the time of God's favor, to bring peace to Israel. And God's Spirit had taken up those words, the promises of God. He had taken up those words and he was now nurturing them to life. Just as he took up the words of God in that opening week of creation and nurtured this world into existence. Once again, God's Word and God's Spirit are meeting in a new creation creation of the body of Jesus of Nazareth. The spirit of life has returned once again to this dead world. And all of this is a window into the ministry that the Messiah himself would have. As the Old Testament prophets had foretold, the Messiah would pour out the spirit. And as a result, this dead world would live again. Jesus of Nazareth lived for 33 years. His ministry was met by opposition. The leaders wished him dead, and finally they got their way. Death reigned once again over this world as Jesus of Nazareth lay in the tomb, but only for three days, because death could not hold the prince of life. Early on the first day of the week, the Spirit of God entered that cold, lifeless tomb in Judea, and the eyelids of that corpse began to flutter. A breath rushed into the lungs, and brain waves began to pulsate once again, and Jesus swung his legs over the side of that ledge where his body had been laid. He shook off the grave clothes, and he strode triumphantly out of that tomb. 
And over the course of the next 40 days, he appeared alive to his followers. And they became witnesses to the resurrection, to the power of the Spirit to give life once again to the dead body of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus lived again by the power of the Spirit, Paul tells us in Romans 8. But the Old Testament prophecies had told us that when the Messiah came, he would pour out the Spirit upon all flesh. Joel 2, verse 28. Surely the resurrection of Jesus then, one man, was not the end of the life-giving reign of the Spirit of life. Before he ascended to heaven, Jesus told his followers to wait in Jerusalem. He said he would ascend to the Father and pour out the Spirit upon them. It seemed that the new age the prophets had foretold was about to dawn. Messiah had promised that he would pour out the Spirit after he ascended to the Father. It would be an age of light, an age of life. In raising Jesus from the dead then, the Spirit paved the way for many sons to be lifted out of the tomb, raised up into the heavens and seated with Christ in heavenly places. If the Spirit, of the one who ra- if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead were in all of them, then the one who gave life to the body of Jesus, Paul tells us in Romans 8, would impart his life to their mortal bodies also. And so the, revela- the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth was the beginning of a new creation. It was the beginning of a new world, a new age. It was the beginning of the reign of the spirit of life over this dead world once again. It was the beginning of the reign of life, the life of God himself. It was the beginning of the reign of eternal life. This was to be the age of the Spirit. And so his disciples waited in Jerusalem. And it was only a few days later, less than 10, that as they were gathered together, that the sound of a rushing wind and the appearance of tongues of fire signaled to them that something dramatic was happening. The Old Testament had foretold that one of the signs that the spirits, that the age of the Spirit had arrived would be that God's people would speak with other tongues. You see that in Isaiah 28, verse 11. You can confer that with 1 Corinthians 14, 21. And that's exactly what happened at Pentecost. Let's turn to Acts 2 and look at verse 4. Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. There's the sound of a rushing mighty wind, tongues as of fire appear on them, and they were all, all, all filled with the Holy Spirit. The age of the Spirit, Joel tells us, is I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, not just upon Samson, not just upon David, upon all flesh. And now they are all filled with the Spirit. And just as the Old Testament prophets had said, they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. The age of the Spirit has arrived. He is here. And all of this now is the background to what Peter's sermon is trying to prove in Acts chapter 2. 
And we're just going to read through the sermon now, and I think it's actually going to make a lot of sense with that kind of background. Okay, so let's look at verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifts up his voice and addresses them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So these are all Jews, or at least proselytes, who've come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Ingathering. Let this be known to you and be give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this that you hear is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and on my female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun shall be darkened, shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass in that day, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is showing them here that the tongues that they see and hear that are being spoken prove that the age of the Spirit has dawned. This is what Joel prophesied, Peter says. This is when God pours out His Spirit upon all flesh. And so verses 22 through 32, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified him and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, because of God's presence with him, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Instead, you have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. David had written those words, but Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Did God raise him up? Not yet anyway. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That's what that psalm's talking about. That he did not abandon he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all that we and, and, and of that we all are witnesses. Peter says, if this is the age of the Spirit, if God's poured him out upon all flesh, then who was the Messiah who brought him? The Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would pour out the Spirit upon all flesh. He's here. Who was the Messiah then? And Peter points to Acts chapter 16, 
and say, it was Jesus. God raised him up. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And so verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, we read so quickly over that. He was exalted. He received the Spirit who was promised in the Old Testament. Having received the promise of the Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my hand, my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. So in light of all of that, here's Peter's conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He was raised up to sit at God's right hand as the sovereign Lord of life, who now can pour out his spirit sovereignly as he will. Bring men and women into the age of the Spirit, the age of life. The time that the prophets had foretold was here. And by proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the grave, Peter is proclaiming the dawn of the age of the Spirit. But what was the mob's response to Peter's sermon? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And in light of what we've seen now, I think that question ought to make sense to us. What are they saying? Here's the realization that's dawning upon them. They had read in their Old Testaments the Messiah would come. He would bring the Spirit. And in pouring out the Spirit, He would bring in this golden age for Israel. It would be an age of life and light. But now they're realizing they crucified their Messiah. He had come to them to bring them the age of the Spirit, but they had crucified him, and now he had returned and withdrawn to heaven. How are they supposed to enter the age of the Spirit now? Have they missed out on the opportunity that the Son had come to offer to them? How then may we enter into the age of the Spirit and receive all that God has promised for us through Him? And Peter's response to them is that it is still possible for them to become a part of the world of the Spirit and have life. Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And once again, we read over this so quickly, but this is Peter's whole point. Repent and be baptized, and you can receive the promise of the Spirit. He'll give him to you, and you can enter into the age of the Spirit. For the promise was given to you. I mean, you're Israelites. It was, it was made to Israel first of all. It was made to you and to your children, everyone who call, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And notice how Peter exhorts them then in verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. We're talking about the age of the Spirit. Save yourselves out of this crooked generation and enter into a new age, a new generation, a new line, a new human race. Save yourself from this crooked generation. 
want you to think with me about what was happening there that day. And hopefully what we look at now will make sense in light of what we've read. This is the mob that had crucified Jesus just 50 days earlier. He was condemned by these very people in this city. None of them on that day of crucifixion were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. And none of them at the start of Peter's sermon were convinced of that either. But at the conclusion of Peter's sermon, 3,000 of them step forward and are baptized in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And they're also convinced at the beginning of his sermon that they've missed the age of the Spirit. And yet at the conclusion of the sermon, Peter says, the promise is still for you. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and you will receive the promise of the Spirit. Peter offers them the opportunity to enter into the age of the Spirit by repenting and being baptized. Now, if you were a newspaper reporter standing there that day, watching all that was going on as Peter preaches his sermon, what would you have seen? Peter comes to the conclusion of his sermon. He calls out, repent! As you look upon that crowd, what did you see happen? The answer is nothing. Because repentance happens inside. It's not anything that you can see externally. But when Peter calls out in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, suddenly the crowd divides into two groups. Some draw back, others rush forward. The repentance that took place in their hearts that we couldn't see suddenly becomes visible. And any newspaper reporting there that day would have seen one crowd divide into two. And Peter's assurance to those who rush forward is, repent and be baptized and you will receive the promise of the Spirit. That group that moves forward for baptism, they are the ones who enter into the age of the Spirit. They are the ones who are publicly declaring that they are followers now of Jesus Christ. They believe His words. They believe His resurrection. They are the ones who are saving themselves from this crooked generation, as Peter has exhorted them. The command to be baptized split that crowd into two distinct groups of people. One group believes Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, that He rose from the dead, the other refuses to believe those things. They remain impenitent. They remain hard. They would have crucified the Lord of glory if he had appeared again. Nothing in their hearts has changed. But the others step forward. They step forward, and in that, one group is obeying Peter's admonition to save yourselves from this crooked generation. And by stepping forward for baptism, 3,000 Jews were physically, visibly separating, distancing themselves from their Jewish brothers who had crucified Jesus of Nazareth. They were making public their repentance. They were publicly siding with Jesus Christ and his people. Peter had preached that by the resurrection, God had declared him to be Lord and Christ. 
And so by stepping forward to be baptized in his name, they were publicly submitting themselves to his authority as the Lord of glory. And they were publicly swearing their allegiance to him as Lord and Messiah. And Peter promised all those who repented and believed and were baptized, he promised all of them the Spirit. And so in their baptism, these 3,000 are making a public statement that they have received the Spirit and entered into that new age, a new generation, a new people. They have entered into the age of the Spirit. The Spirit has entered into them, breathing new life into them, reanimating them now with the life of God, eternal life. This is what baptism pictured that day. But there is one more thing that happened to them. Look with me at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? To the 120 who started out the day as Christ followers. So now there's 3,120 of them. That's what they're added to. Question, what added them? The answer is baptism. That's how they became members of that church in Jerusalem. By being baptized, they are swearing allegiance to Jesus Christ. They are testifying, we have received the Spirit. They're testifying, we have turned away from this sinful generation that crucified Jesus of Nazareth. They're testifying that the Spirit of God has come and given them eternal life, and they are testifying that they now are part of a new world, a new age, a new generation, a new people. They have saved themselves from this crooked generation, and now they are added to the 120. There is a distancing, a separation of the crowd, and baptism makes that visible. Baptism creates a new group of people, Christ followers, that are visible to the world. Baptism then is the threshold across which they stepped into this new age. Baptism was the doorway into the world, the age of the Spirit. Through baptism, they stepped from death to life. And this understanding of what is happening here in Acts 2 actually helps us make sense of what Paul says throughout the epistles. What Paul says throughout the epistles makes a lot of sense as we read Acts chapter 2. For example, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This won't be the first time we've looked at this passage of Scripture. And we're still on the story of baptism. So we'll come back and make this clear in some statements that you can carry away with you. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. John the Baptist had come baptizing with water before Jesus arrived on the scene. John had said, I'm preparing the way for the Lord to come by baptizing all of you who repent of sins. If the Lord was coming, then the new age of the spirit must be, come, must be near. But John had clarified that he was baptizing in preparation for the coming of the Lord who would bring the Spirit. But he couldn't give the Spirit. 
that would have to wait until the one coming after me was here. John baptized then in preparation for the Messiah to come, but the promise of the Spirit and the life that he would bring would have to wait until the Messiah actually appeared. And so John baptized in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah to bring the Spirit and life to this world. And that's what makes Peter's statement in Acts 2 so significant. John had said, repent and be baptized, but I can't give you the Spirit. Peter says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the Spirit. And so between John's baptism and Peter's sermon, something has happened. The one who brings the Spirit has come. And now Peter can say, he'll give you the Spirit if you will repent and be baptized. And so what that means is what John preached, repent and be baptized unto the forgiveness of your sins, and you will enter into the age of the Spirit. John looks forward to that. Jesus actually accomplishes that, and Peter now preaches that, and by repentance and faith, these believers enter into a new world. Now think again about what John said. John the Baptist said, He will come, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. In one spirit we were all baptized. Who did the baptizing? According to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus is the one who does the baptizing. And he's not dunking us in water, he's dunking us in the Spirit. He says, John says, I baptize you in water. Jesus is coming, he'll baptize you in the Spirit. What's the effect of getting baptized in the Spirit? The effect is now we are one body. And that's why those who repented and believed were added to the church. They were added to the one body by being baptized. And so, if this is the invisible spiritual reality, Jesus baptizes in the Spirit, now we have the Spirit, now we are one body, we've entered into this new world, this new age, this new body, this new people. If that's what invisible spirit baptism pictures, what does visible water baptism picture? Spirit baptism is being baptized into the body of Christ. See that? Verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. See, there's the transfer. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Be added to the body of Christ. That's what baptism does. It's the stepping across that line. It's, being, it's distancing yourself. It's rushing forward to say, I've repented. This is what baptism does. It adds people invisibly to the body of Christ, spirit baptism. So what then does water baptism picture? It pictures exactly what Peter said it would picture on the day of Pentecost. Come forward, be baptized, added to the body of Christ. Now you have stepped across visibly into the body of Christ. So let's come now to the significance of baptism. And I think we might only get through the first half of this, but that's okay. First half of the, we, we might, we'll, hopefully we'll get the first page done today and maybe we'll do the next page next week. Let's see if we can sum up now what is significant about baptism, okay? Water baptism 
makes internal repentance and faith visible. How do you know who's repented and believed? Answer, who's been baptized? Who has distanced himself by repenting and believing? Who has saved himself from this crooked generation? Answer, people who've been baptized. That's how you know. Baptism proclaims publicly then that I have repented of sins and now trust in Jesus Christ for my life. Any person who's been baptized, that's what they say. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Savior. And I trust in him alone. Repentance and faith in my heart. I want to show everybody visibly and publicly. I'm now trusting in him, not myself, for my life. That's what baptism does. It makes internal repentance and faith visible. Secondly, water baptism publicly declares allegiance to Christ as Lord. Water baptism publicly declares allegiance to Christ as Lord. This is what repentance and faith are. When you repent and believe, what's Romans chapter, eight, Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 say? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which Peter says in Acts 2, God raised him from the dead so that we would all know that he's Lord. If you confess that he's Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead to declare to us that he's Lord, then you'll be saved. But that all takes place in my heart. But Jesus said, if you don't confess me publicly before men, I'm not confessing you before the Father. That internal repentance and faith, that internal allegiance to Jesus as Lord has got to come out visibly. We've got to be visible public followers of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Repent and be baptized. Save yourself from this crooked generation and enter into the new world. Depict that publicly by baptism. So water baptism is a public declaration of allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. And we see this in Matthew 28. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. What's it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What's it mean to be a disciple of the King? It means to be baptized and to observe all the things that he's commanded. Obedience, but what gets that whole life started? Baptism. Be baptized as a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that baptism is your commitment to obey all the things that Christ has commanded. So water baptism publicly declares allegiance to Christ as Lord. And third, water baptism publicly affirms an individual to be a true believer and receives him into the membership of the church. When you're baptized publicly, you are making your internal repentance and faith visible. When you're baptized publicly, you're declaring allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. When you are baptized publicly, the church that baptizes you is publicly affirming you to be a true believer and receiving you into the membership of that church. Let me show you this. We're here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Invisibly, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. How do we become a member of the body of Christ? Spirit baptism. How do we become a member of the visible body of Christ? Visible water baptism. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. They're baptized and added to the church. Now, 
What's interesting about Christian baptism is it takes two people to baptize. I think I've said this before. Jewish baptism, you baptized yourself. Christian baptism, one baptizes another. The one baptized, what's he saying? He is making his internal repentance and faith visible. The one baptized, he's publicly declaring allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. What about the one who baptizes? What's he doing? He's publicly affirming that individual to be a true believer and saying, come on in, be part of the body of Christ, we welcome you. And this is why only churches get to baptize because only churches represent the age of the Spirit. They are the people of God. But notice 1 Corinthians 12, 13, once again, we were all baptized into. There's the transfer. Save yourself. Be added to the church. And that baptized into language shows up at least four times in the New Testament that I can find it. Galatians 3, 27, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Romans 6, 3, and Romans 6, 4. Baptism is not just, yeah, I want to say this, that I'm a disciple of Christ. Baptism actually picks somebody up and it moves them to a new realm. Spirit baptism does that. It picks somebody up and it adds them to the body of Christ. We are baptized into the body of Christ. Water baptism does the same thing. It picks up somebody on the outside of the church and it moves him inside the church. In one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, invisibly. Water baptism does the same thing. Save yourself. Be added to the church. This is Peter's exhortation. And baptism stands in the middle as the bridge between the two of those. And one more thing that we'll look at here and then we'll finish for today. I think this will finish up this point. But baptism then, we're still under point three of the significance of baptism. First of all, baptism is always in two. It's always a stepping across a line in the New Testament. But secondly, baptism is actually the opposite of church discipline. So we've looked at church discipline before. Think about Matthew 18. You don't necessarily need to turn there. If the person won't repent, we put them back across that line and treat them like an unbeliever, right? They are out of the membership of the church. We are saying you're no longer added to the church. Now you're part of the crooked and perverse generation again. That you, you don't belong to the age of the spirit. Now you're part of now we are going to regard you as part of the world, as an unbeliever. That's actually the opposite of what we see in Acts 16. Let's look at Acts 16 and we'll finish up here. Acts chapter 16, this is the baptism of Lydia. And, uh, she says something here that's quite perceptive. Acts chapter 16, of course Paul goes to Philippi. He goes down along the river. First Sunday, he preaches down there. This woman, Lydia, seller of purple, comes to Christ. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. That means she's worshiping the God of Israel. Um, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I want you to look at two different action words. After she was baptized, she urged us saying, why did she urge them? Because she'd been baptized. There's a connection there between her being baptized and then 
Okay, I've been baptized, so let me urge you. What does she urge them to do? If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Now that word faithful is actually the word that we see in First um, uh, Peter, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 4, all the way through the books of Timothy. It's translated believer. The word can either mean someone who's faithful, who sticks with it, or it can also mean to be a believer. So let's just see if that one works. After she was baptized, she said, if you have judged me to be a believer in the Lord, come to my house and stay. I think believer is best here, and here's why. Because if she's saying to Paul, oh, you've judged me to be faithful. Well, Paul's known this woman for less than a couple of hours. And faithfulness takes a little while to figure out if someone's actually faithful, right? I think the word should be translated believer. And what that means is this. Lydia says, look, you've baptized me. Okay, if you've judged me to be faithful, to be a believer in the Lord, then come on into my house and let's have some fellowship together. What is she saying? She's saying, Paul, you administered baptism to me. And that was your judging me to be a believer in the Lord. That was your point three publicly affirming me as a true believer. So if you've done that, let's get together in my house with all the other people who believe and let's form a church. Let's fellowship together. Your act of baptizing me is your receiving me as a true believer is what she's saying. And that actually is the opposite of church discipline. There's a couple of comparisons here we can make. Both church discipline and baptism deal with the line between church and world. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Be added to the age of the Spirit. Okay. You are not repenting, so we're putting you back across that line. Both baptism and church discipline deal with where is that line and who belongs on which side. And in both, how do you step across that line? Invisibly, it's repentance or not repenting. One of them baptism receives into, the other one excludes from. One is judging you to be a believer, Acts 16. The other one is judging you to be an unbeliever, Matthew 18. And so, baptism is the front door to the church. It's how a new believer enters into the body of Christ. In one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Water baptism, then, is how the visible church gathers together. It's how many who are one become part of one body. It's how we all have joined the body of Christ. And that means that water baptism then is the front door to the visible church. And church discipline is the back door. How do you get in the front door? Repentance. And we'll baptize you. Be part of the church. How do you get out the back door? Don't repent. We'll send you out the back door. Water baptism and the Lord's and church discipline are opposite sides of the question. So, actually, you know what? Let's just see if we can. No, let's not. We're going to try to finish this next week. Thinking we could do five minutes, but the implications then of what baptism means for the church are fairly significant. And I just want to end with this with this question then, and this will get us started for next week. So if water baptism 
is how a new believer becomes a member of a visible local church if it's the front door for entering into the church. What about if I'm already a believer and I've been baptized and I move to another city? Do I get baptized into that church? Do I get baptized again? And that's what we will look at next week. But I think we can go through the implications of baptism and answer these three questions. Do I, did I give you the three questions? Who should be baptized? Yeah. Okay. So I think at this point you could actually go through and answer these questions. So who should be baptized? Who should be brought across that line? Well, how do you get in to the body of Christ invisibly? Repentance and faith. So who do we baptize? Kids? Babies who don't repent and believe? <laughs> no, we only baptize people who have the Spirit. And how do we get the Spirit? Repentance and faith. So we baptize believers. What's the proper mode of baptism? That one we haven't looked at so much today. But uh, baptism, if it's supposed to picture something, then how do we best picture these individual spirit, these invisible spirit, spiritual realities? Of dying to sin, leaving the old life behind, rising again to walk in newness of life, the age of the spirit. How do we picture that? Pouring water over the head? Well, that does capture some of it. That does capture some of it. But the word the New Testament uses is not pour the Spirit into me. It's dunk me in the Spirit. And then like a cup, when it's brought back out, it's full of the Spirit. And so for that reason, Baptists typically baptize by immersion. And uh, uh, what happens then when I'm baptized? And there's four little points that I'll give you into that. And we're going to wait on that one until next week. So, um, What we've done here is lay a lot of thinking uh, groundwork. And now what we want to do next week is look at the implications. Okay, so what does that mean for a church? Uh, that means a lot of things about who we let in the front door. It means a lot of things about when we baptize, who we baptize, what we do when we baptize, what we think about baptism. Um, and so what that means is all of those implications are going to be built on this thinking, this understanding of the scripture, this picture now in our minds of what baptism is supposed to picture, what it's supposed to be. So hopefully you can gather all this up and just keep it for the week, and then we'll build some implications on it uh, next week, seven of them. Uh, so that means maybe you want to bring, uh, bring the sheet back next week so you can fill in the, the other implications. But we'll pray and then see if there's any questions about that, um, and then we will be dismissed. Okay? Lord God, you have done a marvelous work in raising Christ from the dead. You took him up into glory so that he could pour out upon us the promise of the Spirit. And now we have life, eternal life, God's own life in our souls. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us this week to value that. And Lord, the, 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 the practice of baptism draws a clear line between who is part of the crooked generation and who is part of the age of the Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us this week to walk worthy of our calling. You have brought us across that line. Christ Jesus has baptized us in his Spirit, and now he lives within. You have united us to that world. You have joined us by the Spirit's work, by Christ's work in baptism. You've joined us, all of us, to the body of Christ. That means, Lord, that we need other members of the body of Christ. The very, the very shape of our salvation says we must have other believers. 
And so I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to value all that you're doing here in this community to give us other believers. Uh, help us uh, to value our times of gathering together. And help us to appreciate the difference between the age of the Spirit and all who are part of that and that crooked generation. Lord, we're going we're gonna to see them this week. We're going to walk around in the same house as them. We're going to go to the shopping center and we're going to walk past them. We're going to talk to them. Lord, help us to value all that you've done to pull us out of that mix of people and to add us to the age of the Spirit. And help us, Lord, to speak the truth back across that divide. Help us to share Christ, His promise of the Spirit, with these who are dead, that they might experience the life-giving power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Any questions, you're not allowed to ask what the implications of baptism are, but we'll come back to that. But any questions? I don't feel like I made this as clear as I could have today. I'm sorry about that. But uh, any, anything that's bugging you? No? Okay. All right. Take this this week. You know, early church used to the first three to four centuries before infant baptism came along. <laughs> The early church used to look at baptism as a threshold to a whole new life. And you can see why now. It's the life of the Christian. Um, and they used to live, they would exhort one another to live as baptized people. People who have crossed the line. And so this week, let's live as baptized, spirit-baptized people. And in time, may the Lord give us opportunity to live as water-baptized people, to join ourselves, to come together uh, as one local visible church. Um, that's how we cross the line from the world into the church. All right, I'll stop there.